Alright, welcome everybody. This is session number two for Elephant in the Room. We will be discussing death penalty and war. And, um, and before we get started, let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for the time that we have together. We thank you for the body of believers that have gathered here, Lord, to um, just sort through some really big issues that the church doesn't really like to talk about very much. And I pray that you will bless the discussion, that you will uh, bless the thinking, bless the intentions, and uh, help us come together as a group and really have a great discussion and try and discern what it is that you would have us to believe and to act upon and uh, how you would have us go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so... Um, death penalty and war. What's the Christian's position on those two very big issues that very much intersect on the fact that someone dies uh, at the hands of someone else? Mike will be presenting the against position. His position will be, and he can clarify this in more detail, but his position will be that the Christian cannot support in good faith the death penalty, nor can the Christian support war. And Michelle will have the opposite position. She will be presenting in favor of the Christian's support of death penalty and the war. Um, one assumption going into this, murder is wrong. Okay, So we're not going to be trying to deal with that, but it's important to note that because we're not asking the question of, is violence ever justified or not justified? This is not necessarily a question on violence itself that doesn't lead to murder. This is the question of death penalty, like death is the key component in this question. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, all right, so Mike will start off with his position. He'll be given about 10, 15 minutes, and then Michelle will be given a chance to respond, or not respond, but present her position. Mike will then be given another few minutes to present a response to what it is Michelle said, and then Michelle will come back and respond to what Mike said. At that point, we will open up questioning for the speakers. I will be trying to moderate it, and please nobody run and try and strangle one of these people. Um, and then discussions will ensue. Hopefully it'll be a fruitful discussion. I know that last time when we uh, had the abortion talk, it was a really substantial discussion. It was, it was really cool. Um, and then finally, closing remarks, prayer, and that will be the end of the night. Uh, a few principles that, we, that I need to read through. Number one, we are considering these issues from a biblical Christian perspective. This means that personal experiences, opinions, and politics are not directly related to our concern. Number two, we believe that people who love Jesus deeply can have extremely opposite beliefs on important issues. This is called, quote, pervasive interpretive pluralism. The historical fact that very faithful Christians have come to completely different conclusions on certain issues with the exact same scripture in front of them. Number three, therefore, we believe that, part, that apart from a key, few key historical theological truths, a person's Christian confession and identity should not be questioned, because of an opinion on issues such as these. Number four, we also believe that despite a lack of agreement, there is a right and a wrong stance on these issues, and it is the duty of the faithful Christian church to seek out the um, correct stances through his word. And then number five, this seeking of the truth, including our time together, must consist of gentle and respectful language and prayerful listening. All right, so, Mike, would you like to begin? All right, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 6 with me. You'll see I have a lot of scriptures listed here. We won't go through all of them, really most of them, on this first pass. If we need to, uh, during the discussion, we can open up and do a little bit more textual work. Um, a couple things as we get started. Again, we'll open up to Luke 6 and get there in a second. 
Uh, I'll be presenting the position that according um, to the biblical data, uh, a Christian should not support or be okay with the death penalty and or war um, by virtue of some of the things that we'll discuss tonight. Uh, it's important to, to delineate what I'm not going to be saying and what this position is not trying to say tonight. The first is that I'm not saying that people in the military are bad. Uh, that all military people are evil and should be demonized and things of that nature. This is not an anti-America rant, anything of that nature. Um, and the, the Christian stance, uh, as I'll argue tonight, is based off of a priority of obedience, uh, of obeying our Lord, not on necessarily desire or preference or even, and this is an important key, effectiveness or pragmatism. Uh, Christian doesn't act the way he does because he thinks it's the best strategy necessarily for himself or for others. He does so, she does so, because that person believes this is what the Lord has required. And faithfulness to the Lord is more important than whatever kind of plan we might devise. Um, now, when you, have, when you look at the scriptures and try to think through these kind of issues, you have lots of what we might call puzzle pieces. Okay, And some of them appear to be opposite of each other. Um, they appear like they're conflicting or contradicting. Uh, we're not going to be able to, I'm not sure if you can, we're definitely not going to be able to tonight, proof text every little verse in the Bible and try to fit it in to one position or the other. What we can do and we'll attempt to do is try to paint a picture that includes most of the puzzle pieces in a satisfactory way. Uh, and so what I'll do uh, just real quick in a couple minutes is try to put forth a fourfold presentation um, to, to hit at this point, again, that I'm presenting tonight, uh, that a Christian should not support the death penalty and or war. Um, the first point is this. In the Gospels, what we have recorded for us, Jesus explicitly teaches against violence. Whatever you want to call it, he teaches some sort of nonviolence in his teachings. This is a very explicit ethical teaching on behalf of Jesus. He looks at the Christians and says, don't do these certain things. So we'll look at one of the big ones here in Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount, which you'll find in Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7. Sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke, because he gives it on a plain and not on a mountain. Um, we'll pick it up, Luke 6 in verse 27. I say to you who hear, uh, now again, let's get our preconceived notions out of the way and just try to hear this from Jesus and, and kind of see where common sense takes us. I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But verse 35, he reiterates, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, watch the, the progression here. This last part is extremely important. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Notice this sentence almost seems sequential. Do this, and your reward will be great. You get a reward after you do something. Jesus almost seems to be saying, if you want to be sons of the Most High, you need to start living like this. And what is this? Loving your enemies. If someone is persecuting you, you bless them. 
Very rarely, in fact, some have argued, nowhere else does Jesus link an ethical action to the character of God himself. Again, Jesus is not purporting that this is an effective way to deal with whatever you want to do. Jesus is purporting, this is how God is. If you are a believer, if you're in the kingdom, this is how you should act. Now, obviously, not easy. No one's looking at this and going, this is a great idea, okay? Um, And so some have suggested various options of dealing with this text and others like it. One would be, this is impossible. Jesus doesn't expect anyone to ever actually act like this. It's an impossible ideal. You're meant to look at it and go, wow, I can't do this. I'm glad Jesus died for me. Um, And various people throughout the history of the church have taken that interpretation. Um, I think it's rightly rejected by most people. Jesus doesn't appear to be talking in hypotheticals here. Uh, He appears to think this is realistic and doable. In fact, he expects this out of his disciples throughout the book of Luke. It won't be long, and we have this as one of our scriptures, until the disciples want to call down fire on a city, thinking that this is the the way that you do things. People diss you, the Samaritans will let them in, call down fire, be done with them. And Jesus goes, stop doing that. What have we established here? God is merciful, we're merciful. Um, And so you have uh, that one way of interpreting it's impossible ideal. Another way, and this is far more common, is to say that this teaching, this ethical teaching, is personal and private, and not communal or nationalistic. So some would say this, Hayden might be required to turn the other cheek. But a government or a group of people would not be required to do that. This is not a military command. This is not a nationalistic command. I would also reject that kind of interpretation. I think that's poor what you call exegesis. That's poor reading of the text. If you understand the situation of Jesus' day, the Jewish people are under Roman occupation. Now, there's a small group of people, small but significant, who think the best way to get out of this Roman occupation is to fight. The Pharisees were one of this group, these groups of people. Remember Saul persecuting the other Christians, this zeal for the Lord. We will fight against them. Jesus continually in the Gospels warns them that if you keep fighting Rome, Rome will come in and kill you. He makes predictions when he heads to Jerusalem that the temple will be destroyed if the Jewish people follow this nationalistic agenda. The Jewish people, if you know anything about history, do not listen to Jesus. In 70 AD, they pick a fight with Rome. Again, Rome comes in, sacks the temple. The temple's still not there to this day. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Um, so, so Jesus does seem to be setting a national agenda here. Um, in fact, one of his examples is a military example. If a soldier asks you to walk a mile with you, this is actually a reference to soldiers. There was a, a law on the Roman books that a Roman soldier could ask you to walk a mile and make you wear his pack with him. Now, they couldn't make you wear the pack for more than a mile um, because that would seem as cruel. I don't know. That, that was the limit they put on it. Notice again here, we're running out of time already, but... These, while we say they're nonviolent, are not passive or non-resistant. This is not do nothing in the face of evil or persecution or violence. You're doing something. It's just not what? Violent. So he says, do this. Walk an extra mile. This is a non-violent form of resistance. Uh, so imagine this. A Roman soldier asked a Jewish man, carry my pack for a mile. They carry it for a mile. The Jewish man says, I'm going to keep going. Now watch what happens. The Roman soldier who was just persecuting the Jewish man now is begging the Jewish man, give me back my pack. I will be killed if you keep carrying my pack. See how the power has now shifted. This is actually a very clever way of um, kind of subverting the power system of the day. 
Same with turning the other cheek, and again, we can walk through those type of things if we need to throughout the time that we have, okay? Um, so again, I would, I would venture to say, I think it's hard to read through the Gospels and read through Jesus' teachings and not come away with a common sense idea that Jesus is not about violence. And, and in fact, that's kind of his thing, is to go against violence. Um, and again, I would say here in Luke, he kind of equates being a disciple with participating in this. Um, and this is one of the characteristic things about Jesus' life. I think it was Gandhi who said... The only people who don't realize that Jesus was a pacifist are typically Christians. Only we are clever enough and disobedient enough to look at the Gospels and come out with the Jesus who hurts people. Um, when you read the Gospels with a common sense kind of lens, he seems to be all about not hurting people, okay? So not only do I think we have explicit teaching on behalf of Jesus, but his life as one who is nonviolent, at the heart of our faith, is a guy who did not fight when he had a right to. You'll remember, he tells the disciples when he gets arrested, I could call down legions and end all of this right now. The option of fighting was there for Jesus. He could have used violence to accomplish God's will. He was aware of this fact. He wanted his disciples to be aware of the fact. And he said, no, that's not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom will come by me dying, by me actually doing what I've taught you to do. I will pray for those who are persecuting me. And so Jesus in his life sets an example. Now, as the incarnate God, Hebrews 1 would say he's the exact representation of who God is. Colossians 1 would say that he's the image of God. You remember human beings were meant to be, we were created to be the image of God. This is a way of saying that Jesus is the perfect human. He is what humanity is supposed to look like. So his life is an example for ours. Also, Jesus is the most ultimate, full, final revelation of who God is at its core. If your God does not look like Jesus dying on a cross, according to the scriptures, you're not talking about God. We've talked about this before at Cube. That's what the incarnation means. To say that Jesus is God is not so much to say that Jesus is like God, as if we knew who God was and Jesus happened to look like him. It's to say that we see Jesus and now we know who God's like. So who's God's like? Well, God's like someone who doesn't fight. God's like someone who conquers without returning violence, those type of things. So we have his explicit teachings. We have his example as the incarnate God. Um, we also, I think, uh, when we're trying to fit the post piece together, obviously we have the Old Testament where we are going to get in some sticky situations. But I do think there's an eschatological narrative or a narrative of history going somewhere that fits in with Jesus' life and his teachings. Two examples real quick um, as we start off tonight. The first is um, that in the... Old Testament, when you look at um, prophecies, you have creation starting out, and it's a nonviolent creation, okay? Uh, other creation stories, creation starts with violence. Gods are fighting against each other. Gods are fighting man. And so that's kind of how the world is. The world is violent and messy, and people go against each other. In the Christian creation story, the world was not meant to be that way. The world's created in peace. There's shalom. It's very good. It's with sin that you get violence and Cain. Um, uh, and you have first murder come in and, and kind of everything spirals out of control. Well, the prophets, Isaiah, Micah, we have these two scriptures down here, said that in the days when the kingdom would come, which Christians say has happened with Jesus, in those days, people will take their violent tools and get rid of them. They'll beat down their plow, they'll beat down their swords into plowshares. Um, they'll get rid of their war making. Isaiah will say they'll learn how to not wage war. They'll learn how to not be violent, those type of things. So even in the Old Testament, where you do have perhaps some sticky situations, you have prophecies that when the kingdom comes, when what we're looking for happens, this will be no more. 
So whatever we want to say about that, there is a narrative that looks forward to a time when God's people would be practicing nonviolence and would be living faithfully in a world that is violent around them. You also have the stories of God's wars with the Israelites in the Old Testament. I would suggest almost preemptively that when you look at those stories of war in the Old Testament, we should compare them to other stories of war in the ancient Near East. The big difference between the two is that the Israelites' war was all about Yahweh or God winning for them. It was never really about their military prowess. In fact, do you remember some of the stories with Jericho? Did they have a really great army going up against Jericho? No, they constantly do ridiculous things. Sometimes they go fight without an army, and they win. And it's over and over and over again, God saying, I fight the battles, you don't. You have Psalms, a long tradition saying, we don't trust in chariots and horses, we trust in the name of the Lord. Again, I think you see a pattern, I think you see a trajectory that Jesus' life and teachings fit into fairly nicely, putting the puzzle pieces together. And then my last point um, would be that the early church... uh, represents the tradition very well until the time of Constantine. So for the first few centuries of the early church, there's almost, there might be debatably one person we have record of who is not completely nonviolent in the early church. It's debatable. Other than that, every single source we have, every one of them is firmly, firmly, firmly against war and against violence. Unarguably. Tertullian, Clement... Irenaeus, all of them. We go down to the early church fathers. So, again, throughout time, the church changes their stance on this. But the people, I say, who are closest to Jesus, his life, and his teachings are very clear. They're following the pattern, I think, set out by Jesus um, and by his teachings uh, in in being nonviolent. So, again, I I think looking at the scriptures, one would be forced to, to confess that from a Christian conviction, it's very far-reached to be able to support death penalty and or war. Um, real quick, with death penalty, if you look through, and, and there are, in the Old Testament, lots of offenses that, according to the Old Testament, merit capital punishment. Lots. There's lots of those texts in the Old Testament. Lists of things that you should be killed for. However, notice this. In just the Old Testament, Moses and David, the two biggest figures in the entire Old Testament are both worthy of the death penalty. Neither of them get it. Paul, the biggest figure other than Jesus for the New Testament, for Christianity, should have been killed according to the death penalty and wasn't. I think that's a strong trajectory. In the New Testament, every instance of the death penalty that we have is an injustice. John the Baptist, Jesus, Stephen. So again, I think that putting the puzzle piece together, there's just this almost overwhelming landscape in the scriptures that strongly pushes the Christian conviction away from being able to say we have the right to to take someone's life. Um, Again, I think Jesus' words stand, the early church stands in faithfulness to that, that someone hurts you, you bless them. Someone attacks you, you pray for them, love your enemy. Uh, And I don't think you can love your enemy by killing them. So that's me. Can okay. I go way over? You were 1521. Look at that. Right. <laughs> right on time. Okay. Uh, despite looking at the teachings of Jesus, we do find in the Old Testament scriptures a God who constantly is okay with killing um, and instructing human beings to do so on his behalf. Um, for instance, we have the King Saul 
who is instructed to take his army and completely annihilate the Amalekites. And because he saves one person, God says, you will no longer be the king. That's the reason why Saul gets demoted. It's because he spared a life. Okay? There is a tension that we see in the Old Testament that we have to deal with. Um, I think that Mike has presented us with a possible explanation, but it is a tension nonetheless. Um, We also see, as Mike has stated, from Constantine on, Christians has predominantly supported war. Now, I will qualify that and nuance that a bit, and that they would support war under specific circumstances. Everybody agrees war is not great, and we would love to be able to talk it out. But when we have a situation, perhaps Nazi Germany, where you have thousands and thousands of people being killed because of their race. We're beyond talking at that point. And somebody's going to have to make the difficult decision. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was around, who was a German at that time, struggled with that very decision. Should I assassinate Hitler, who is ending so much life? And it was a struggle for him. He struggled. And so I would say, uh, in response to what Mike has said, that perhaps war can be seen as a way of ending violence, as creating peace under some certain circumstances. Thomas Aquinas very famously had three. Um, I've given you a handout that entitles Just War Criteria. So classic um, proponents of just war theory would adhere to these tenets that unless we have all of these here, we do not have a just war. We do not have cause to go to war. Um, And this is an expansion on Aquinas, who would say that we have to have uh, the right intention. You'll see on the first page. um, So that force may be used only in a truly just cause, not for material gain, Um, or maintaining economies. This is, we see an evil, and the only way to end that is with violence. Um, Proportionality. The anticipated benefits of waging a war must be proportionate to its expected evils or harms. The benefits have to outweigh the consequences, or at least be proportionate to each other. And then a competent authority. Um, only a duly constituted public authority may wage war. So, therefore, dictatorships. Hitler can't go and say, this is a just cause, let's go kill all these people. It has to be a competent authority. Um, And obviously you see further down the list, just cause, comparative justice, uh, probability of success, last resort. Um, All of these things are put into place So that war really does become a last resort, but sometimes a necessary one. Um, And I think the reason that it became complicated for Christians after Constantine is because before Constantine, this was just a small little rowdy group that was persecuted. Now, after Constantine, they have some political influence. They're, in a sense, 
a part of this empire, um, and they're a part of this government. And I think that's a similar situation that we as Americans find ourselves today. Um, we are not a persecuted small minority, but we have to make some decisions as voters um, on war, on whether we think this is a just war or not. Um, finally, in the New Testament, there are several stories where Jesus interacts uh, with Roman officials. Now, when Jesus previously interacts with sinners, for example, tax collectors, prostitutes, he tells them, he accepts them, and he says, end your profession. Go and sin no more. This is not something that you're to do anymore. He does not do that with the Roman soldiers. He does not say, now put down your sword. Take up a life of peace. He commends their faith. He's complimentary to these people whose lives is killing people, is carrying out Rome's commands, is usually crucifying people. And he says, look at their faith. Uh, if you want to turn to Romans 13... This is another text that is common, commonly uh, proposed by people who um, advocate just war. And I'll just read uh, the first few verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Based on this text, many have believed um, if we were in a draft situation, which we currently aren't now, um, that we would be going against scripture if we resisted the draft if we did those things. Um, and if we were against, if America has said this war is what we are going to do and we do not support it, that is not submitting to our governing authorities. And that is what I have to say in conclusion. Okay. Um, we will now move over to Mike again. Stay open to Romans 13, please. <laughs> I don't know if this counts or anything, but I'm wearing an anti-death penalty shirt. So I get, I should get oh, I didn't talk about death penalty. I kind of merged those two together. If y'all have questions, sorry, he hardly talks about it too. <laughs> this is actually on the shirt has the name of every person in America who's been executed by the death penalty up to I think about a year ago or so. I'll say 
be merciful to your father's mercy. This so are you going to present or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A couple, a couple things. First, in Romans 13, uh, notice though there's a problem with Michelle's argument um, in that she. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. <laughs> she suggested that Romans 13 would be able to stop Hitler, that he would have to be a competent authority. Notice though, Romans 13 says all authorities. There is not one that exists that has not been ordained or instituted, however you want to translate that word, which is a tricky word, in Greek. Romans 13 was actually the proof text of the Nazi regime. This is how they got the church in Germany to fight for them. You have to obey us. We exist, therefore God supports us. I think that's a shallow reading of Romans 13. I think I would, I would suggest a better reading of Romans 13 one that would allow us to stand up to an evil empire would be one that understands this text in terms of Old Testament providence, where we have backgrounds in the Old Testament very similar to what Paul says here, where the prophets are talking about Assyria and Babylon, two evil empires, where they say God has used Assyria and Babylon for his purposes. He's ordained them, orchestrated them, ordered them. I think ordered is the best translation here. Now, notice, God using Assyrian Babylon does not give them moral legitimacy. It's not God underwriting their actions, saying, I like what they're doing by going total war and everyone killing them all. It's simply saying, don't worry about them. It's in God's overall plan. Again, uh, I think Romans 13 is actually the problem in World War II. You would not have had World War II. There is no Nazi Germany if the church in Germany does not fight for Hitler. Why does the church fight for Hitler? Precisely because they were reading Romans 13 that way. Hitler's in power. We're going to obey him. Notice also Romans 12, which is always important to read. Pick up in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Let me just be really clear. That's a bad strategy for war. Okay? If your enemy is hungry, to offer them food. This is not advice for someone who's about to go into war. This is advice, though, for someone who's a Christian, who's following the teachings of Jesus, which this is very closely mirroring. Um, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Again, don't do that in war. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I would want to suggest here, Paul's very clearly talking to Christians. He just explicitly told them, do not do what he says the government does. You have to remember in the first century in Paul's writing, the Christians are not in the government. They're not serving in the government. They would not be required to do the things listed in Romans 13. He's talking about a different group completely. And he's not saying God morally approves of what that group's doing. All he's saying is God's going to use what they're doing. He's just explicitly told the Roman church, you don't do those things. So you always have to read Romans 12 before you read Romans 13. Uh, and you always have to keep in mind history when you read Romans 13. In fact, the modern day nonviolence movement was in large part started by World War II. Because Bonhoeffer and others looked at the church in Germany and thought, shame on you. How dare you ever join that army? Well, they did it because they perhaps did not have the scriptural backbone to stand up against violence.
um, and to live faithfully in Jesus' teachings. I will say this. Uh, with the Roman centurion arguments, this is an argument from silence, okay? Jesus never once approaches someone, lists off all their sins, and says, I don't support any of those things, but I like this about you. Um, so it's hard to say, just because Jesus didn't point out this guy's, just because he didn't say, hey, by the way, you're in the army, I don't like that, that this is Jesus going, hey, guess what, I like the army. Um, I mean, you could do that ad infinitum, I mean, for everybody that Jesus ever comes in contact with. Just because I have a conversation with Sam, and I don't point out publicly all the things that I don't agree with, I'm not morally validating every choice she's ever made or will make, right? Um, I'm just interacting with Sam. Uh, so argument of times, I'm not sure works there. Uh, two last things, and then, then we'll get to the discussion after Michelle's response. The first is you have the requirements for a just war here, okay? Um, these are fairly agreed upon, upon Christian theologians. I would suggest to you to find me one war in history that fits these. One of them. It has not happened. Not one single time. Which leads a lot of um, theologians today to say just, because a lot of people will call nonviolence um, not realistic. You can't expect people to do that. Others would respond, just war theory is non-realistic. That doesn't happen in real life. At least we've seen people be non-violent. We've never seen a nation or a group be a, engage in a just war. I would even suggest, look closely at those. World War II, while I'm not, again, morally advocating for Hitler or for the Holocaust, one of the most extreme atrocities I think humanity has ever seen. But the way World War II was fought does not fit just war requirements. We killed civilians. Remarkably killed civilians with no regard at all. That does not fit in a just war. We call for unconditional surrender, total surrender. That has never once fit into a just war criteria. So again, I mean, think what you want about World War II. Good things happen because of World War II, right? But don't say that just war supports that. Just war does not support that. It doesn't hold that up. Again, I would challenge maybe to find one war that really fits the criteria of just war. Um, and you can finagle it to maybe get a couple of it. Uh, lastly, I'll end with this. No one reads the Bible flat, okay? Uh, which means no one reads the Bible as a whole bunch of little pieces of data that you have to put together. You always give priority to something. What people who support nonviolence suggest is that we give priority to Jesus and his life. We give priority to the fact that Jesus taught nonviolence and lived nonviolently. Um, and we let that assumption and that belief influence how we read texts in the Old Testament, um, influence how we read texts like Romans 13, things of that nature. Um, again, I would suggest this is a, it would be an arrogant claim to say I read the Bible objectively or flat without a priority in hermeneutics or interpreting different texts. The real question is what's your priority? If your priority is a God of violence, a God who makes things right by might, then sure, you'll read the New Testament in different ways, and you'll find ways to get rid of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and get rid of the different things that we have throughout the Scriptures. But if you give priority to Jesus and his teaching and the revelation of God through his life, that might influence how you look back and look forward. Um, again, I think you have this narrative. The warfare language in the Old Testament is spiritualized in the New Testament. It's still there. Jesus fights, but he says we're fighting against Satan. He tells the Jewish people, don't fight against the Romans. You've mistaken the real battle. It's against the evil powers that are behind human beings, above human beings. Paul in Ephesians 6 says we fight against principalities and powers, not flesh and blood. If you, so according to Paul, if you've ever fought against flesh and blood, you've fought the wrong battle. That's never what you're supposed to be doing. And he's following Jesus' lead here. 
there are higher and more powerful forces behind human beings. Violence begets violence. There's this thing called the myth of redemptive violence. And this is a, a, again, a myth, a story, a narrative that most of humanity has bought into since the beginning of time, which is that you can violently end violence. That bad can lead to good. The myth of redemptive violence. It's never worked, once again, in history. It always creates more violence. If I punch Hayden, what's he want to do to me? Punch me. If he punches me, what do I want to do to him? Punch him. We're just creating more and more violence. If Hayden shoots Chris and I shoot him, have I gotten rid of all the murders? No, there's one left. Who is he? Me. I'm now one who is killed. I've gotten rid of him, and in his place, I've put one who's killed. The only way, and I think Jesus understood this, the only way you stop violence is to absorb it. To let it die with you. To suffer. And not pay it back on someone. So Hayden hits me. The only way I can end that situation is to let him hit me. Am I going to hit him back? No. Am I going to verbally attack him? No. Am I going to go hit somebody else when I'm so mad? No. What happens there? It has now died with me. I think that's what's happening in the cross. With the sin of the world coming in on Jesus, this is what forgiveness is. Not paying someone back what they deserve. The only way for the cycle of violence to stop is to absorb it in on yourself. Once again, I don't think this is necessarily a strategy for a government. I don't think this is advice to give a government. I'm not sure you could ever expect a government to act this way. But you can, and Jesus thought you should, expect the church to act this way. As a witness to the world. This is what the kingdom looks like. When you love your enemies, when you bless those who persecute you, when you pray for those who are attacking you. Do you have a response? Okay. Um, I had a clarification question yeah. just before the response happens. Um, on the just war theory, does that mean that you would accept the just war theory criteria? You said it has never happened. Were you, was that an acceptance of just war point, or was that not? I, from my position, I would not accept the just war theory, but I would be happy if we could do it. Okay. I'd be happier than the state of what we're doing. Okay. I would be okay saying we could. Knowing <coughs> that, I don't think it's possible. I don't think we have. Okay. So nuanced, but yeah. Okay. Uh, most of your points uh, are fair, and so I think the one that I'm really going to respond to is the myth of redemptive violence. Um, when I when you look back in history, uh, the Nazi regime will go back to World War II, this common one. That war ended the Nazis. There is no longer a Hitler and his minions or a Mussolini out there. We have ended the Nazi regime in that sense. Yes, there are still people who propose those ideas and those philosophies, but there is no way that the mass population would ever think that it's a credible and viable option because of what has happened. Um, Also, the Cold War. You had two countries that it looked like it was a peaceable talking out of. But the fact of the matter is, it was the threat of a nuclear holocaust on both sides that had us talking out of that one. So we could argue that, I would say that that was not a true pacifist stance. And that even the threat of violence can possibly end and produce peace. That's what I'll say. I'm more interested in hearing. I'm, All sure right. I'm sure y'all have opinions. All right. Um, 
We're going to open it up for questions and discussions. Mike kind of took us a little bit more into the question of violence territory than I was led to believe that we would be going on. So I guess that actually is a fair question if you wish to endeavor on that. Um, so if you wish to talk, then raise your hand and I will try and call on you as best I can. Go ahead, Jake. I have a question for Mike. Um, most of the examples you gave against Oboran violence, as I request here, um, were things that were personal in nature directed to the self. Uh, for example, blessed those who you, right, etc. And someone just like you, turn here to cheat. And uh, in Luke, the text you opened us up with, I couldn't help but something just caught my ear when you were reading it was. Uh, Luke chapter 6 verse 30 give to uh, give to everyone who begs of you can someone not beg for protection can someone not beg for help uh, also the verse uh, chapter 631 uh, you know, do do unto others the whole global aspect do we not wish for protection from our government do we not want to be kept safe. And if we see someone, I mean, it's very clear, I agree with you, that things visited directly upon us, but something visited on that. How, how would you respond to that? Okay. I think I came up with three things, okay. three separate kind of things in your thing. First one is a personal issue, personal versus public. I would want to suggest individualism as we see it and as we read with individual eyes does not exist in the first century. These use are corporate use. This is, and again, if you look at Western versus Eastern ways of thinking, just the way you see the world epistemology, they think in we, we think in me. Um, so Jesus talking to a group, I think they would have understood this as a group. Um, and again, I think there are corporate, very corporate, obvious implications of what he's saying. There are organized military revolts that this directly speaks to. Um, then uh, to the idea of what you'd wish to do for others and someone would beg you, uh, I would want to again suggest nonviolence, at least how I think Jesus proposes it, is not doing nothing. So I think there's a false disjunctive between hurting somebody and stopping evil. I think there possibly, I mean, in a crazy world, could be things in between, right? Where you talk or you interfere. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that you might, in a weird world, right, stop someone from doing evil without hurting them or killing them. Um, so I would want to suggest that there's possibly lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of tiny steps in between those two things, um, which is where just war theory kind of comes in. One of the just war criteria is last resort. It shouldn't be the first thing you resort to is to go bomb somebody. It should be literally the last option you have um, for just war. Mm -hmm. Lastly, uh, <clears throat> with protecting somebody else or wanting to be protected, um, uh, or I'm sorry, with the government, um, what would we want the government to do? Again. If, if from my position, if I think of my position of being honest, they're fine with the fact that America has a military and that America protects them. I think they enjoy Romans 13, which is God tends to use governments to keep a little bit of order in the world. Um, the difference is there's a clear demarcation between the church and the government. Um, and we've messied that up a little bit because mm -hmm. with Constantine, now the church is the government, the government is the church. Mm -hmm. But there was a clear separation. The church doesn't do things the government's allowed to do. Um, and so the argument would be what if the whole world's the church? Or what if a large majority is the church? Eventually, they're going to have some form of government. How do they interact? Uh, and so I would say, one, I'm happy there's a military. I'm happy a military protects Zach. We would not be here talking, right, if we probably didn't have some of the policies America set in place because of their military. 
Um, that's all great and honorable and thankful. There's gratitude there for that. I would suggest if the church got to a point, the real church, where it was large enough to have those kind of implications, perhaps their nonviolent stance would have rubbed off on the world, and there'd be positive effects that would counteract maybe the need for a large group of people to wage war and those kind of things. Did I miss something? It does, but uh, it kind of sounds like you're condoning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm resisting asking. Somebody doing like, One. I'm saying I'm not going to ever ask a person who does not believe in Jesus to not fight. But I. But you're glad they're doing it. Uh, and you're glad that these people are are designated warriors. Yeah. As long as we don't have to do it. Can I possibly respond? I think that if, if and he kind of did on this is that if everybody in the world was a Christian, all right, we wouldn't have weaponized airplanes and guns, we would form them into something useful because we wouldn't, there wouldn't be war. But since we live in a fallen world where there are countries who would invade other countries to take their resources, he is grateful that there are people who will protect us, despite him being against war. Does that... The position would be, I think it's, I think, again, based on the reasons I've given... Jesus is very clear Christians are not to do these sorts of things. But the scriptures also say, again in Romans 13, that there are governments who will do these kind of things. Both of those somehow exist in the world. But Christians, I don't think, at least the position right, should ever compromise their obedience to the Lord in the name of serving a government or serving world peace. Again, you get into effectiveness versus obedience and faithfulness. For, I'm sorry, for clarification, I think that more people are confused than I than I am, um, and I'm pretty confused. Are you suggesting? Uh, are you suggesting then that because because the real question has to do again with is war ever justified in a Christian mind? Can we ever vote for you know war yep. per se, or can we vote for the death penalty specifically? I realize we've kind of gone off on the the violence thing, but you said I'm happy that there's someone doing this, keeping us safe, but. Would you then say that Christians should also not vote for war and not vote for death penalty? I think that's, is that where the disconnect is happening for some people's minds? I, I think, can I? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the, the confusion comes with think, thinking, well, let them do it. Let them fight and us get the benefits from it. Um, and I think what Mike was trying to say is that he would not approach righteousness from telling them not to fight first he would he would expect that if they were going to come to righteousness it would be through accepting Christ you know accepting Christ first so it's not it's like they're going to do that um, and it would be it would be impossible to expect them not to do that if they're not Christians and so I think you kind of by saying I'm happy that they do that that's kind of a that's an opinion that goes off to the side yeah. you know let me I'll take back that sentence that kind of language um, <laughs> Uh, just a, a comment on that. Yeah. Uh, an example I can give is my grandfather was drafted in World War II, didn't get, have any problem, went straight to his draft office, and when he got there, he requested to be a mail carrier because he didn't want to ever be put in a position where he had to shoot someone because he was a Christian. And that's what he did for the entirety of World War II, is he carried mail. The problem is, is what happens if everybody wants to be the mailman? 
so is there a solution to that? At what point, is there a separation between what you are choosing as your own personal individual self and what you're permitting the, the collective? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I'm not, as, as someone who would be, again, trying to follow the Lord's leading on this, I would not be happy that there is war or that people have to engage in war. I think the real harm done in war, other than the people being killed, would be the people doing the killing. I think that's a, a serious injury on them uh, as human beings. Um, so I would want to protect them in that nature. What I meant to say by that, and perhaps it was a poor sentence, was that if there are benefits that come from that, from the Lord ordaining things, that doesn't morally approve it. So in the same way that Christians can rejoice that God has used Assyria to do certain things, and might be glad Assyria is there, in that sense, in that kind of use of the language, that would never mean to say that they should act like Assyria or that they would try to create an Assyria or do the things like Assyria. Um, it's just a recognition in, in providence um, and things of that nature. Go ahead. All right. Um, I kind of exist in the middle on these kind of subjects. If, if I were to seriously look in the Bible, I, I think I would have to agree with Mike that we cannot voluntarily go out and uh, have acts of violence. That if I were to stand in front of someone and they were going to possibly kill me or shoot me, in order to be a true Christian, in order to show God's love and light to the world, I would then have to become a martyr or someone of that sort. That in that moment, my sacrifice would better serve God's kingdom than me fighting back. Um, that being said, I do have a gun in my closet and will use it if someone ever decides to try and hurt my nephews. Um, so, um, but then again, once again, that, that would be that is a sacrifice. I would be willing to make sure that the loves of my life are taken care of and loved by God's grace, and know that if they survived, it, it was because that God loved them, and I loved them because God loved them. Um, the problem I'm seeing, and this has always been a um, situation in my life, is what, what do we do in, in order to solve those conflicts? Um, I am a theater person. I'm a theater teacher. What is the first thing we talk about? We talk about conflict. In order to play, you have to have conflict, okay? Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. People don't go to the theater unless there's conflict in the play, okay? It exists. Uh, we, we live in a fallen world, and there is conflict. So how do we go about solving conflict? Yes, we can go and try and be nonviolent, but um, Mike, how do we solve that? Do we be aggressive in our nature and have conflict and have fights with one another, or do you remain passive aggressive and um, try and satisfy those needs without actually the needs being met? Therefore, the conflict never is resolved. We start by banning theater, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> First step, tough point. No, I need conflict in my life. Mike's playing to over the world. Uh, yeah, no, I think actually in history you have examples of how you would do such a thing and solve major conflicts without violence. Um, in large part, it is about, and you see this in Jesus' examples, asserting humanity. It's about asserting humanity. And in particular, when you see this in history happen on a large scale, people tend to side with the oppressor, surprisingly enough, when they know about it. Um, now, that's not always the case. Again, perhaps you've seen this in the news recently. Some boys bullied an old lady on a bus, um, which should not surprise you if you know young boys, okay? Uh, but this gets public all over the internet. Are you aware they've raised, people raised in a couple of days, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this lady? 
And these boys have gotten, for I think weeks consecutively, death threats. Like, every second of every day. Now, she is not having to be violent towards anything like that. They're definitely getting what they deserve. You might say way more than they deserve. They're stupid little kids. And she's being rewarded. So, again, you might have this... Say an employer is beating you or doing evil things to you, right? You might say, let me cock the gun and go in and shoot people up. Or you might go on TV and have an interview and say, I don't know if this is right, but let me, let me explain mm-hmm. what's happening in this situation. This person's doing this to me. Is that okay? Is that what I should be doing? And then watch public pressure on this lawyer. This was the strategy um, for Luther King, if you remember, right? It's public awareness. Let people know what's happening. And then assert your humanity in light of persecution. I think Brittany hit on a good point, which is to follow this line of thinking in the scriptures is to accept suffering, is to accept mm-hmm. sacrifice. Um, again, I think that's where my earlier statement might have been off base a little bit. Um, the point of following Christian uh, or following Jesus on, on this line and having this conviction is not to say we're going to mooch off of the evil of other people. To say, like, we have moral superiority. We're glad you're killing each other because it makes us have a good life, but we don't have to get our hands dirty. To say I'm not going to fight is to be willing to say, I'll let you kill me. There's vulnerability there. There's sacrifice there. Yeah. But she had another really good point, and it's entirely one thing to take that sacrifice on yourself, but for an adult not to protect the innocence, the children, is morally indefensible. And if it meant taking another person's life to protect um, the lives that were given into my care, I absolutely could do that and feel... And feel obligated. I know I would be compromised, but I know my Lord's grace would cover that. I know that that in a fallen world there are terrible, terrible choices you make sometimes. And to choose to let those little children know. That's you know Again, and I understand where you're coming from completely. And, and in war, yeah. that's sometimes what it was. Well, if, if the allies, to me, so we keep coming back to World War II because it's the it's closest to us. Mm-hmm. Some of us actually know people. Um, I, I mean, I, I keep going back to C.S. Lewis's writings about World War II, and he definitely saw it as, as, as light against, against the darkness, and that if you chose not to fight, then you must be willing to put yourself... To be like the men who went out onto the field to bring the wounded back in. You had to be under fire yourself. You had to accept some of that um, as a Christian. That it was totally okay for a Christian to say, I can't wield the rifle. But you had to be under fire with the other men. I would, I would respond in a couple ways. Um, I just think old yeah. people should fight wars. Yeah. <laughs> the ones who have passed on their DNA, we should be the ones to And I'm not, I'm not attacking you. Uh, <laughs> but in response to that... This, this perhaps would be a response. And again, not an attack against you or anything like that. Um, and I totally understand the same things. I mean, I have a little brother and lots of people in my family who are in my world who I consider brothers and sisters who I would definitely die for and probably instinctively hurt somebody pretty bad for. In fact, I have a little kid who's autistic and he's very close to me. Uh, and he got bullied one day and got shoved around and hit. And when I found out about it, when I heard about it, I literally spent about 30 minutes praying, thanking God that I was not there for that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would not have been able to do something very terrible to that little boy mm-hmm. who hurt that kid. But that, to me, would not mean that in an intellectual, rational state of mind that I would say I should do that. That, to me, would be admitting that that was wrong. Um, so, and again, I want to point out that a lot of times we make that jump between, so say our family's in danger. We make the jump between being violent 
or killing lethal violence, who is what we're talking about, and then stopping that person. I think there's millions of different things you can do in between. Without, without getting too lethal violence, there is still a resistance that can be nonviolent. So like someone's attacking my kid. Um, I can hold them down. I mean, can I can you, step can in front you, of them, things of that can, nature. Can you if they're 30 pounds bigger and they have a weapon? There's, there's, also the, there's also the aspect, I think, of in hypothetical situations that we, that we <laughs> are thinking about, we've got to be careful not to talk in kind of atheistic terms. So if the world is just cause and effect, if all that's standing between my child being hurt and an attacker is me and no, nothing else in the world exists, then perhaps I have a responsibility to do something. But if there's a higher power who's told me very explicitly to do this and not do this, then it might be that they can intervene. And if they don't, perhaps obedience to them is still better than whatever kind of plan I might come up with on an emotional response. All that said, that would be a possible response to you think, I am totally with you in that seat, right? I mean, if, <laughs> if you see someone being hurt, and especially someone so close to you in your family, I mean, there's an instinctive thing that kicks in. But I think it's instructive that you might have to ask for forgiveness later, that you might absolutely. have to say, the Lord will ask me for it. Absolutely, it compromises you. But it's still, and, and, and it's not just, I, I think we should take out the, so I use the example, under my care. If I'm walking down a street and I see a child abused and I don't step in, when I, the moment I saw that child that I don't, I don't know their name, they were put under my care. Mm -hmm. But again, this is different, this is different from stepping in and just stopping it happening versus stepping in and killing the person. Yeah. Well, uh, that's well it might blurred that line quite a bit, quite honestly. Well, it's blurred the line. It's blurred the line. Yeah, I know. I, in fact, I think 90% of your first opening statement was focused on violence itself. Um, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, I am in the military, and I dislike violence. But, again, I'm willing to do what it requires. I've been in situations where the nonviolent approach was better at the time. But if you ask me, I will destroy anything in front of me because that's my job. Um, there was a story that one of my squatters told me that they were in uh, Bosnia. Uh, they were being stopped by some local uh, Serbians. And they could have called anybody and destroyed whoever was in front, but they chose to go around, step on a field mine go around them and pretty much it's like Moses opened the the, 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 the ocean and you know the seas. And there's a lot of things like that. But then again, again, we are to destroy things. I see your point. You know, I me personally I'd rather not the violence. But we don't live we don't live in those times where Jesus was teaching. There's a lot of people that their thing is to harm us. I mean, I'm willing to bet you don't go to certain parts of Houston because you know they're bad. And you don't want to be put in this situation, you know, because you might get hurt and you say, you know what, I'm going to put my other chick is going to stop you from hurting me even more. That's my biggest issue with that. I, there's no way that you can live in this modern world and take the teachings as the other written. It's almost impossible. I mean, I understand, you know, back in the day, yeah. But now, there's too many, too many variables. And I just can't see that. 
I'm with her. I have a gun in the house, and if somebody comes in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot first, and I'm not even gonna ask who. I'm not even gonna ask. I'm not gonna do it. You have the right to remain there. Yeah, exactly. I do truly believe, though, that with every power of my being, I will try and follow Christ in everything that he says. So, I mean, I do take what he says very literally. Um, just recently, I was looking in the Old Testament going, wow, we should all be dead right now because I'm wearing pants. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, like, I, I do really, truly honor the Bible for what it says. Um, I then uh, discovered Hebrews 9 was very thankful that, you know, Jesus came and died for me. So that I wouldn't die because I wore pants. Um, it's, you know, so, uh, yes, I do have a gun. I enjoy shooting. I don't enjoy killing, though, so. I have um, it's yeah. Like, did you want to respond, or? Yeah, say something real quick. Two things. The first is, again, I completely resonate with everything you're saying. I don't think it takes somebody more than four years old to understand all these things and to feel them, like, in their core. Um, and I think that's one of the things that make these kind of teachings so hard to absorb, is that at the core of our being, they feel wrong. And it feels like this can't work. This can't work for the world. This can't work for me. Like, this is not a way to live. Um, once again, and this kind of leads into another point. From a Christian conviction and perspective, we're under obligation to believe Jesus. He seemed to think this was going to work. He did it like it worked, and it worked for him. He was resurrected. God vindicated his way of obedience. And the early church, and here's where I might press back to you. The early church in the first 200 years were actually crazy persecuted. They were killed all the time, and they lived this out very powerfully. And it wasn't until, again, Christians got in bed with the empire mm-hmm. that their attitudes toward that and towards it being possible and things like that changing. But you're, I mean, the assumption is right. To do this requires sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be pretty for you. It's not going to be pretty for the ones you love. Um, and again, when it comes to the children issue, this is, or people in your care, this, again, is a very sensitive subject that seems wrong to us. But there are countless stories of the early church where the saints watch their children die. This to us, right? We think they're morally evil, the worst human beings you can imagine, to stand there and watch your children die. To them, though, and again, please don't shoot me for saying this, <laughs> but to them, they were more attached to their Lord than to their children. And they trusted their children to their Lord. In our world, we sometimes wonder why we don't see things like the early church saw them. Miracles, healings, the power of the gospel. Perhaps it's because we've already lost the game. We'll never see the power of a testimony where parents, again, this real famous story in their church, watch their kids die in an arena before them because they won't deny Christ and then are steamrolled. As they're watching their children die and as they're steamrolled, they're singing a song, More Love to Thee, O Christ. Very powerful witness. You've got to imagine blood and martyrs through the church. That was a huge moment for the local church. You've got to imagine the Lord received those children and those parents with the most standing ovation that you can imagine. But we would never, ever see that in today's world. Why? Because from the get-go, without even considering the scriptures, we've said, I will kill anything in my way before my children are harmed. I get that. I understand it. Because I'm, I'm like you, right? I mean, that's, this is who we are. This is the world we live in. This is what we're taught from a very young age. But this is not how Jesus assumed things. This is not how the early church assumed things. There's been a change somewhere. The question is, should we have changed this? And again, I want to point out, 
from the get-go of the presentations, almost everything we've discussed has been experience, opinion. Very little of it has been exegetical or scriptural. I mean, the question, again, that I would want to suppose is before we get into, does this work, is this practical, should we do this, is this what we're supposed to do? And I think for a Christian, that's a much more important issue. Sam was up first, and then yeah, Jake, and then you're up. Um, I just want to read the mo- one of the most favorite, I mean, famous, you know, proverbs ever. It says, "Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your sh- make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own lives. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil." Um, and I think. There's two things that I was thinking, and one of them is that what your decision to be obedient to, to Christ is, regardless of that, isn't meant to make, if my decision is this, is not, to, is not meant to make me look at someone else's decision and judge the way their, their, their faith based on that. Um, and it, it could be like we're discussing now, I think it's appropriate to discuss it, but I think a lot of times there's a want to defend not the action but yourself and your own faith um, and your own righteousness in this. And, and I think that it's really easy to get defensive because you're like, well, this is what I believe and you're offending me. Um, and I think it's, it's good to remember that we don't need to worry about us being offended. If I mean, Christ is our righteousness, so it doesn't matter. It's not reflected on us. Um, but then with the, the, the aspect of you know, protecting the young children... Um, you know, it's it doesn't make sense, and everything that we do as Christians, like we like Mike said in a sermon um, a couple weeks ago, it's not going to make sense to the world, and it's not going to make sense to us. And to watch, you know, children die, and to not protect them to the extent that you may have to for it to actually be effective, might not make sense. But if we trust in the Lord and all in in our, all of our heart, that's what the Lord has told us to do: is not to do this, this, and this, then he, he is not, God is worthy of being trusted, and the the salvation of the world and his plan for the world um, isn't going to be canceled out because of that wrongdoing to that child. Um, Rome was doing terrible things to people, and I'm sure children as well, and Jesus did not stand up and go and fight them. Instead, he let them kill him on a cross because he knew his salvation was greater than saving that child in that moment because he was going to redeem not only that child, but in the entire creation. Um, and I think it's that insane, unlogical, un, you know, being able to debate, trust in the Lord that even though that seems so unspeakably evil, evil my God is greater and he's bigger. Um, and you might hate me for it. And you can shoot me for saying it. Because I won't shoot you back. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it down. Go ahead, Jake. Uh, I have a question for Michelle. Oh. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike's up. Okay. I have a question for Michelle. Uh, I do have to set it up just, but I'll be as brief as possible. That's um, fine. You used World War II as your example. Right. One of the most fascinating to me, personally, periods of American history, mm. three months after Nazi Germany surrendered. Mm. The whole country threw a wild party. Everybody was happy. Mm-hmm. Most of uh, baby boomers were born. Etc. Et <laughs> 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 they were photographed with the kids. That three-month period ended when Nagasaki and Hiroshima happened. Mm. And uh, sociological sociological studies show that uh, most of our fear 
about the Cold War was born out of a nationwide sense of guilt mm. over the fact that we were the only ones in all of humanity that actually ever used this weapon. Mm. And so many instances died. So the question I have, I'm going to give me a is it ethically right for us to use war as a tool if we have proven that whatever our initial intentions to first employ it, mm -hmm. that we have never been able to wield it correctly on a moral perspective, that we have always seen, seems to have always taken it too far, mm -hmm. always once the war has begun, gone wildly out of sync with what Aquinas or any of us would probably consider Right, that's a good, great question. And I think that goes back to Mike's point of there's never been a just war, period. Um, and that humanity seems to be incapable of producing a just war. Um, and I'm not sure about this. I don't know if just war theorists are uh, pragmatically pacifists uh, because they cannot really back any war that has happened and call that a just war. Um, and you do have, um, there, there are pacifists who will say that this has started before World War II, that wars seem to, um, the next war is a cycle of trying to redeem themselves from the last war, and it just kind of goes on and on, which goes again back to Mike's cycle of violence, that when we use that kind of a tool, peace doesn't, Peace isn't produced, um, but more war. Um, and so if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you about my position, I, I do lean more with Mike on that one. So we don't have someone to defend that position now? We don't. If there, I'm sorry. <laughs> I also hope by the Q&A session I could go back to that. <laughs> I do know from studying, some of my graduate studies has been in the area of just war. Uh, just war theories, theorists today are scrambling because we're in a whole the global world and nuclear weapons have changed the entire game yeah. so for the most part people have scrapped their old rules and have tried to start from scratch um, as far as today's just war theorists mm -hmm. so they're not as maybe perplexed with that kind of issue because they still think they're operating from assumption we need a just war uh, war is inevitable we need to limit it and so the ability is how do we possibly do that I don't think they have the same moral conviction that we need to stop this. They're just trying to figure out the best way that we can kind of contain this. We're going to control. Yeah, I suppose to, to jump in here in laps of Michelle. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> did my best, I guess. Uh, maybe you should be moderating. Um, I, think, I think maybe a just war theorist might suggest um, 10 million dead is a whole lot better than 50. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of crap that went down but we didn't ask for it. And I think that going along kind of with what you were getting at, a just war theorist in, in even more of a personal side of things would protect the innocent child and pray for forgiveness if they didn't mm -hmm. because the blood's on their hands. In other words, it's like, don't we serve a big God who does miracles? Yes, one of the miracles is I have a gun. Mm -hmm. Like at some point, I might actually be part of his plan here. Maybe he's provided me just for this situation. It's worth noting that scripturally God has traditionally moved through he does occasionally do things, but all Is this a sexist argument I'm hearing? It's also, to respond to... takes action, he takes action through one of us. To respond to Chris's point, from my position, again, 
to try to polarize things and push back mm-hmm. would be to, to, if I wanted to be rhetorically pass, uh, rhetorically aggressive here, would be to say that position then puts you smarter than Jesus, who had legions of angels at his disposal mm-hmm. to stop all the injustice that he saw in the world, but decided that that would not stop the injustice, that violence does not solve anything, even his own violence. We have to grapple with the fact that Jesus could have killed all the murderers in the world in one swift movement. He didn't. He died. And the Christian said, that's how he saved everyone. That's literally the entire plan of God to fix evil in the world. Was not to kill people, but to say, I can, but I won't. I'll suffer it on myself. So again, to take the pragmatic approach, for someone who's an extreme nonviolent person would be saying, it's nice that you're smarter than Jesus. I'm... Too bad you didn't come to save the world. Which is a fancy way of creatively using words as a straw man approach. I mean, that's not necessarily what the position is saying. I'm smarter than Jesus. And, and obviously you would get into a, a battle on what did Jesus say, what did he intend, what was his mission, what's ours, how does that jive with the Old Testament, which I actually haven't heard a response to regarding how do you sequence these two together. Are, do you want to answer that, or do you want me to go back in? Can we, I think there's some hands that haven't talked yet. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, going on your logic which you're facing one of your um, things, violence and war and I'm, I'm completely leaving that penalty out of this because they really are two very separate things so your argument is violence according to Jesus and if we're going to obey him violence is wrong and since war is based on violence then war is wrong and I see it not as an either-or. It's more like a Venn diagram. There is some overlap between war and violence just because violence has been taught. And you, you said right away one of your very first sentences is all based on obedience. So I'm looking back in Joshua 11, verses 10 through 15. And I don't want to read the whole thing because I don't want to hear about it. But it starts off, off and Joshua turned back. You said, I'm sorry, Joshua 11? 11, verse 10. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, Hazor, and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And you go farther down. um, And all of the spoils of these cities in 14, and the livestock and the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So here, God is commanding this war. And so how do you separate obedience to the God of the Old Testament and obedience to Jesus, who is God incarnate in the New Testament, to say war is wrong, to, to come out and say unequivocally war is wrong. I understand your argument on violence applying to the individual versus the government. Like I said, it's not an either or. These don't exist and they're not overlapping 100% either. They're not separate. They're not 100% joint. There's a common area. But that's not saying war, as God commanded here, is always wrong, is always morally, theologically wrong. I would, from again, from my position, would suggest three things possibly. Again, I think you're going to have to give priority to a revelation of God eventually. Do you give priority to the revelation of God in Jesus or to the revelation of God in Joshua? The two do at face value seem a conflict, which means 
there's no, I mean, there's no way I don't think you can have both of them 100%. You have to interpret one of them through the other. And I think most people probably interpret Jesus through the, the God of the Old Testament. Um, I think Christologically in the New Testament, perhaps passages like Hebrews and Colossians, the exact imprint of God's nature is in Jesus. So I would suggest, I mean, that would be one way of doing that. It's just to give priority to Jesus so that you'd have to reinterpret this. The other thing would be that I think it's in God's ability to change the rules. Not necessarily that he changes his mind, but to change the rules. So, and we talked about this when we did Acts not too long ago. In the Old Testament, eunuchs were not permitted to be in the temple, to be in the fellowship. New Testament, they are. They're allowed in the community. Um, this is a direct contradiction of Scripture. I mean, it, you cannot get more direct of a contradiction. God himself said, these people will never be part of my community. And then in the New Testament, they're a part of the community, and this is a celebrated aspect. Um, so, I mean, you can, do, you can just say it's a contradiction and everything's stupid and we shouldn't believe any of it. Or you can say, perhaps the rules change per time, and there's a goal that we're going toward or an end that we're going toward. And there was prophecy. I mean, we saw that in Isaiah. He said, eventually, on that day, the eunuchs will be allowed in. They're not right now, but we're heading towards something better. And I think you might see that kind of prophecy in the Old Testament, which is this is how things work right now, but when the king comes, they won't work like this anymore. And then lastly, it might be worth pointing out, if the Lord, if I knew that the Lord came and told us to go to war, I'd be much more okay with it mm-hmm. <laughs> than a government that exists right now. Right? Uh, and this has been a point Chris has made in past in private discussions, which is what if God himself like, had the government? It was his government, kind of like the Israelite theocracy. Like, well, then I would probably go with it. Now, we would disagree, maybe, perhaps, and I don't think God would do that at this day and age. But again, I think it's worth pointing out that if he is... I would probably agree. do what he's told you to do if he's explicitly telling you to do it. Um, in your obedience argument, where the words in red, Jesus' New Testament words in red, does he say war is wrong? I, you know, I mean, thou shalt not go to war. I mean, where is there a direct command separate from violence? I mean, I totally yeah, yeah. see your whole mm-hmm. argument on violence, but where to obey Jesus does he say war is wrong? I cannot... So say I'm in the army, and, and again, say I'm fully committed to this position 100%. I would not be able to kill somebody from another nation who is supposedly my enemy, because Jesus told me to love my enemies. Mm-hmm. So if I see them hurting, what the army would tell me to do is to kill them, mm-hmm. or to leave them alone, they're hurting, what, what not, right? Jesus would tell me in the back of my mind, go help them. Yeah. And at that point, I would have to choose, mm-hmm. am I in the army or am I Christian? Mm-hmm. Those are two com- com- conflicting obligations uh, in my conscience in that situation. And I would be forced with a choice. And I could compromise either one of those. I think the question in that situation would be which one do I want to compromise. And so it would just be, I don't feel like I could do that correctly. Because to be in the army, you can't, you can't make those kind of choices. I mean, you have to be committed to your nation. You have to be committed to those kind of things. So I think you can't turn off those, that being Christian type thing. So it would, from the get-go, prevent me from being an effective part of a war. Because I have those kind of convictions that if I see someone hurting, even if they're trying to kill me, I help them. And that I don't think that jives our role in war. Now, from a real soldier, I know you have a response. So. Yes, I do. <laughs> that's actually those actually rules of rules. Um, if your enemy is hurt, you're supposed to help him. You shelter, water, you know, whatever. As long as you know you take the weapons away. Uh, there's thousands of thousands of very, very Christian, hardcore Christians in the military. 
and there's a conflict always. I mean, I'm not the most Christian-like person, but there's always a conflict. I mean, I don't care what you believe in, there's always a conflict somewhere in the back of your mind. Uh, I used to have a captain who used to say there, the next second that you're, I forgot, I tried to remember anyway, it'll take 7.5 7 pounds of pressure or to pull a trigger, right? And that's what it's going to take to take somebody else's life. Um, but you're always required to provide medical aid, food, all this stuff, as long as they surrender. Even if they're, a second before that, they're trying to kill you, if they say, okay, I'm done, you're supposed to give them every, all the help you can. Even before that happens, you always give them the choice to be helped. Uh, again, I am not the Christian, I guess you can say, but I've been in those situations, and the first thing that comes to my mind is like, please do not do anything that's going to make me hurt you. Uh, I've been in situations where I had to hurt somebody, and after that we go help them, even though they just try to pretty much kill us. So there's always that conflict. Um, I don't know what else to say, but yeah, that's, that again, I just violence. And another thing that I was going to say earlier, earlier you said some about if he shot him and they sh you shot him, yeah. will that end violence? Well, if he's, he just shot him for no reason, or he's a murderer or whatever, and you shot him to stop him from doing that, that doesn't really make a murderer, that's just trying to help somebody else. Are you gonna keep on that pattern or shooting people that then you know, yes, it'll make you a violent, very violent person, but if you're not, you're we can to stop somebody. Well else. we can play the situation out more. He shoots Chris, I shoot him. Mm -hmm. His dad shoots me. My dad shoots his dad. Mm -hmm. I think that's his silly. brother. I don't think it's necessarily what he's saying. Yeah, I, think, no, I, think, I think he's saying is like say he's a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> he kills Chris, goes off to kill Michelle, goes off to kill somebody yeah. else. You shot him to stop him from killing somebody That's the key is to stop. Even let's take that another step forward. You see him about to shoot Chris and you kill him to prevent Chris from dying. Yeah. Now there's another life that's there. That wasn't yeah. there beforehand. <laughs> yes, but we're also discounting the fact that the two gang members have a knife fight, and the cop cocks the shotgun, and all of a sudden the knives go away, okay. and everybody yeah. goes home. <laughs> I mean, there is a deterrent effect. Uh, right. the point to where it could have but, but but I think to get back to kind of what you're what you're getting at, I think Zach's I think Zach's point actually makes a lot of sense because while there can be a situation where you're talking about knives. There are real-life situations um, that happen where, okay, you have an ability, so speaking of the soldier situation, you have your M16 trained on a terrorist who is literally about to blow up a child. And you say, at that point, I can save this child's life should I do it. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Did you want to respond to that situation or no? <laughs> well, no, I'm just I would love to put myself into that. <laughs> I would say this. Again, if I'm going full blown on this position, I think as a human being and one who has basic moral compass, if I'm holding that gun, I shoot the bad guy and deal with the consequences, which I think there will be for myself and from the Lord. 
But I, I do it, right? From, from my situation, is I would not be holding the gun. I wouldn't put myself in a position where I thought I might have to disobey my Lord. Um, and I would know that that would be a possibility if I took up that gun and gave a situation where there was a guy holding a child. Um, at that point, you're, I mean, you're right. I don't think I would stop myself. I don't think I could. And in fact, I might, in that moment, think I would be uh, one of the most evil people in the world if I didn't at that, at that point. Um, but I've already taken steps of disobedience, I think, to get to that point. Um, it's like the whole flee from temptation type of thing. Like, I've already put myself in that situation. Perhaps there are ways to set up for obedience before that. Okay. Um, that's possibly why I might. You've had your hand raised for a while. Well, I think the thing that keeps going in my mind is, should a Christian join the army then? Because there's an awful lot of Christians in the military, and I'm hearing you say that, no, they shouldn't. It comes down to, I think, a basic principle, which Americans have struggled with, which is, is compromise allowed? But why is it compromised to defend your country? Well, if Jesus has, has said, love your enemies. But, but you why? can love them. By killing them? Listen. Can I talk on real quick? Can I talk on real quick? Let's be, let's, let's, I would even phrase this even more than just simply, can a Christian join the army? Can a Christian join the police force and expect to have a gun on the street? Can a Christian join any sort of law enforcement along with the army? I would phrase the question as. Didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's true. Any place where you're going to be called to pull a weapon and perhaps kill somebody, is that a can a Christian do that? Uh, I'm hearing you say no. Yeah. Well, the early church would be very vocal about that. No. But what about right now, this year? Again, I think the question comes down to: Would you be willing to be in a situation that would force you to compromise? Most. I think people are more American than they are Christian. There's a movement. Then, If you embrace nonviolence, that's a radical obedience type thing. I mean, that's flying in the face of, of a lot of common sense and a lot of responsibility in how most people perceive it. Um, and so you're, you're simply saying, I'm going to obey in what's been revealed to me despite what may come my way. So I, I'm sure we've seen in the movies where a, a guy is robbing a store, right? He has a gun. Again, as you said, uh, I think it applies even for the military. Most people don't want to kill somebody. I mean, that's, I think that's a very innate, basic human thing. And even bad people don't want to kill people, usually, who rob lots of stores. They say, what? Don't make me shoot you. I want to get out of here without killing a human being. That's not in my plan for this. This is just to intimidate you. And a cop shows up. The guy gets scared, shoots somebody, possibly accidentally, and it's like, oh, no. I mean, we've seen that kind of scene, right, where you have not accidentally done it. Well, again, to be a police officer would mean that you're a priority before anything happens, accepting the possibility that you might start something bad and that you might compromise your own beliefs, things of that nature. All that to say, again, if you're radically trying to, I think, obey these commands, it would, I think, prevent you from doing those type of things. So you're saying a Christian should not be a police officer in the army or any of those kinds of things? I think, as Jake mentioned, there might be some caveats uh, and things of that nature. We can do yes that. or no. Yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow. We'll allow under certain circumstances. Male carrier. Jessica. British police don't carry guns, right? They carry their own batons. You can be on a, a, a bicycle cop. He said they do have guns in their car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Jason had a question first. I want to back. respond to Mike's. Um, his first train of thought on the example that Andrea brought up of Joshua and that you have to make a choice between 
whether you're going to follow the um, embodiment of God in Joshua or in Jesus. And I don't think that's a fair assessment that you have to make that choice because that's assuming there is absolutely no other option than entirely nonviolent or all-out war. And I think a just war theorist is going to tell you that that's not the case, that there are times where nonviolence is absolutely the right answer, but that there are other times when violence and war are warranted. So I think you could make a pretty powerful argument for just war in that in Joshua's case, there was a purpose for the war and it was condoned by God. In Jesus' case, he did not react with violence because that was the plan at that time. So I think you could make the case that there are times where war would be justified and times where it is not, rather than a polarizing absolutely one or the other. Jessica, did you have a response to that? Yeah, just my thoughts are thinking and trying to coordinate what we see in the Old Testament and then Jesus is, we are called to be Christian, little Christ. We're called to be like Christ. You know, there's nothing in there that says, we're supposed to be like the nation of Israel in this way. Right now, what we've been put forth is to follow Christ and so his example is as a suffering servant. (laughs) And so, I'm just working through this stuff myself and I know that it's a lot, it's very easy for me to say some of the things that I believe then whenever it comes true or whatever. But I think it's about, I think so, something John Howard Yoder says is that, and I think Mike said it earlier, something along the lines is that we're not doing this because we think it's the most effective way. We're doing it out of obedience because that's what we believe that Jesus has taught. And I think that we have to look bigger picture and look at when we believe the gospel and that his death, is, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm not communicating very well, I'm sorry. Um, but we believe in, I mean, the cross is at the center of our faith, it's at the center of our history, and we, process, we need to process everything through that. And so, I don't know, I know it's, there's a lot of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, mm-hmm. but I think we have to go back to seeing how Jesus lived and died and like, I don't know. Real quick, real quick to interject with that. We've got a lot of hands up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Another thing that you might want to interject and that people like Yoder and others who argue for nonviolence have pointed out is that oftentimes when you're reading texts that are not yours, I mean the Old Testament is not our text. It's the Jewish people's text. We've adopted them as Christians. They're not ours. They're from a long time ago, things like that. It's interesting to see how those people in those times interpreted those texts. Because sometimes we look at them and go, that can't mean that. When the people closest to that situation thought it did mean that. And we're very comfortable with understanding it in that way. By the time of Jesus, there was actually a large portion of Jewish people who were pacifistic, who were pacifist in theory and in action. Um, and it happens when you get into the exile. You even see it in the prophets. Um, and they had completely gone away from the holy war idea that you see in the Old Testament. Um, and so you see like Jeremiah says, when you go to the foreign city, seek the welfare of that city, things of that nature. A large portion of the Jewish... Um, the Jewish people in existence by the time of Jesus had already made the move from an Old Testament God that you might see as holy warish to a pacifist way of following God. Um, Jesus is not the first one to, to jump to that conclusion. 
Uh, and then also, I, I would say, it goes with the death penalty too, which we haven't talked a lot about. Um, but so in the Old Testament, there's lots of descriptions about the death penalty and lots of things for that. Well, we know from history and from the rest of the Old Testament, the death penalty was never really enforced that much in Israel. There, we have maybe three or four examples in the Old Testament of it actually happening. You would imagine with all the different things they list out that are worthy of being killed for, it would have happened a lot more. And by the time the Mishnah is written, again, by these same people, it's their text, um, they had established further rules before you could enact the death penalty. One of them was you had to have 23 witnesses of the crime that you're being charged for. And as it's the Jewish people who inherited these texts said, we don't do the death penalty. That's not what it said. said you have to have 23 people. <laughs> yeah, scholarship of the Mishnah readily accept. In fact, I was reading it today that the rabbis put forward that thing to be faithful texts, and so that they would never ever have to do the death penalty because you're never going to have a crime, particularly crimes that are worthy of being killed. Where there's 23 witnesses. You do those things in private when you hit somebody, when you kill them, kill a baby, things like that. You don't say, "Let me get 23 witnesses to get together." I have no idea what's up next because I saw like eight hands go up at the same time. Um, tell you what, I'm going to go with people we've not heard from yet. How That's about true, that? yeah. Not heard from you. It's easy to come up with hypothetical, protect your kids, or, you know, somebody's, you know, it's easy to look at recent history and it's not hypothetical. Are you saying we should not have fought in World War II? Yeah, it's kind of a black that's, and white. Yeah, that's kind of the big, the, the big mm-hmm. thing, right? World War II, Jews are being killed by the millions. Right. What do you do there? Um, what I would say from someone who is firmly committed to nonviolence, if they're putting forth a position, is the question itself is not fair. Because world Nazi Germany would not have existed if the church had not been willing to fight in the army. So what you've said when you've asked that question is said, your world will never exist, now what do you do? And the, it would be, well, in my world, if we were following my ideas, that would have never happened. Um, and if we were at the ideal state, where we all behave like Jesus commanded, yeah. Well, no. If, we if only the not. church did, not Hitler would not have had an army if the church did not fight for him. The church in Germany, by and large, stood by him and went, and his army took up uh, arms. If they had said, "Sorry, we don't fight," not even because you're evil, just because we don't do that, Hitler would not have had an army. Right. Um, and but so I, the, think, I think his question is, I think his question is, okay. Yeah. So my idea would be this: the the the. <clears throat> Implication by the question is, if you've already made the wrong decision, should you make the wrong decision to correct that wrong decision? And my thing would be like, well, the wrong decision got us into World War II, or got us into the Holocaust. Perhaps the wrong decision wouldn't get us out of the Holocaust. Perhaps that's going to do something bad, too. Um, so it was Gandhi who said, I'd rather you kill somebody than not do anything, than be a coward. He said, I'd rather you be violent than be a coward, right? Like, if something gets to a really bad situation, I'd actually rather you kill the guy and stop evil than not do anything. So by the time we've already made so many bad choices that millions of Jews are being exterminated, I would say somebody somewhere needs to go stop them. Right. But I think you've already assumed that we have to make bad choices on a large level to get to that point. That's assuming it just yeah. do. It's factual. It's not a open it human race. Okay. okay. Um, hey, John, how I'm kind of starting to believe that maybe war is okay, and it's up to that individual soldier fighting in it to ask for their own forgiveness. And if every soldier did that, if they were true Christians, then, you know, we would be okay. Because isn't it easier to say I'm sorry than to ask for permission? 
I saw your hand go up. Not you. I, I, I just think this all has to do with how we think injustice is going to be cured. I mean, the, all this, the hypothetical situations that are being put forward are matters of injustice. And it's how is injustice best served? Is it by killing the evildoer? And I think what Mike said earlier, it's, it's not by doing that, it's by absorbing it yourself, which is what Christ actually did. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells Peter, Peter to put his sword away. Don't, don't kill the person. He actually heals the person who's going to take him and beat him and put him on the cross. Mm -hmm. And is healing the world by doing that. And that's what he asks his followers to do. And so it's not a matter of, well, if I'm in war... What's the best way to cure injustice? Is it, is it to go and shoot the evildoers? I don't think so. I think it's to go to the impoverished people who are being held captive and either be in captive with them as Christians and help them the best that we can and try and take on the suffering that they're, that they're undertaking unjustly on ourselves the way that Christ did by coming down from heaven and suffering as a human being for us. And, and I think that's where these... I mean, your hypotheticals, you're putting, that, that's what you're wagering, is what's the best way that justice is served? Is it by killing somebody, or by really believing Christ that the best way is absorbing it and forgiving somebody? Okay. You fed your hand up, go ahead. It's so patient, it's so hard to be patient. Okay. Um, Mike, you're being so cute by being passive-aggressive. Look, okay? He was a rebel by being a pacifist. And in this world, as Christians, we are going to piss a lot of people off because we're trying to follow Christ as a pacifist. And I am more than willing to anger entire nations to know that I am following what Christ has called me to do. So that is a definitive answer for people who are looking for a definitive answer. No, we, we should, there should be absolutely no violence by any means. Like I said, I do have a gun in my closet. Don't follow it. If I had to, probably wouldn't follow it. So therefore, where would I be sitting, wouldn't I? Um, and I, I know that about myself, so that is something I do know. Clearly, I'm not perfect. Um, but if we were truly following Christ, we would have to piss a lot of people off by being true and being pacifist. So... That's, that's, that's it. Go ahead, Rebecca. Um, I think sometimes we, we're straying and saying, what would I do and would God forgive me? Versus what is the absolute righteous decision? Right. And I think that those are completely two different things because, I mean, God has used a lot of unrighteousness and he is so good that he's turned, He's brought good out of it. But I, doesn't, I don't think that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at what is the righteous decision. And I think with the questions um, of... Was this wrong? Was this wrong? Should we not do this? Should we not join the army? Like, they're kind of unfair because, A, we're not in saying you shouldn't or saying we shouldn't. It's not an attempt to undermine the faith of the people that did. Um, we know that God has led them and has the Holy Spirit within them, is in control of their life. And I have, as a pacifist myself, I have no want, desire, or authority 
to say that this person's life is tainted because of a decision, because I don't agree with it. But I will say that what it's not, should we not do this? It's what should the church do? And the church should, like he said, in times of war, no, we shouldn't, maybe in my opinion, I was like, no, we shouldn't join the army, but yes, we should be on the front lines protecting the innocent and serving them hand and feet in that. And maybe we shouldn't shoot the terrorist who's about to shoot the child, but we can jump in front of the bullet or, you know what I mean? Like there, it's never, I almost hate the term pacifism because it should never be passive. The church should be in the front in love and in suffering and in torture. Um, and, and I think that would be the answer if we could do that.